Genesis chapter 3, starting with verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and, that, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. All right. That is a great passage, and that's exactly where we're going to be today. I got to tell you, I heard a wonderful story, and it's a true story of a preacher who went to visit a family in the church. This is way back in the day when it was common for pastors to just knock on a door and uh, sit with the folks for a few minutes, you know, and pray with them and then go on about his business, go to another church, another uh, church, no, another uh, house. <laughs> and uh, so he went and he knocked on the door and the car was in the driveway, but n no one answered the door. So he took out a piece of paper, wrote on it, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And he left it there on, on the door. And he went to church the next Sunday. He's getting ready to walk up and preach. And a lady reaches out and hands him that note. And he looks at the bottom of it and it said, I was naked and I was afraid, so I hid. <laughs> Genesis chapter Well, last week we started this series on choosing to be a healthy family and really focusing in on uh, the decision to have a healthy marriage. And from Genesis, from Adam and Eve, we actually learn about what it means to be a healthy uh, marriage by how they were not healthy. Uh, God put them in a healthy environment. They started out healthy but they chose to sin. So we're going to pick up from there. Let me, if I can, as we get started, just maybe do a little review. Uh, there is no entity on this earth that has taken as great of a hit from the culture and the fall of man like the human family. And what's important to understand is that the breakdown of the family didn't begin in this culture. It started all the way back in Genesis, 
That's where this breakdown really got its roots. And, and so if we go back to the origins of God's design for marriage and family, we have to go back to the book of Genesis. And this is where we see the first family, Adam and Eve. And for uh, the rest of this message, we're going to focus on that couple. And we're going to learn from their sinful decisions and from their times of disobedience uh, why we're in the shape that we're in today. Now, in review, last week we looked at the fact that God put man in a perfect environment that he could have. People say today, the reason I am the way I am is because of the way I was raised. My mom was this. My dad was an alcohol. I didn't have a dad. We have all of our environmental things that we focus on and the atmosphere that we were raised in as an excuse for why we are the way we are. Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment, and they still chose to sin. You cannot blame the environment, even if it's a bad one. you got to get to a point where you say, I'm my biggest problem. I'm a sinner. I was talking this week with one of the leaders from Dunklin, Patrick, Dunklin Memorial Camp. It's a 12-month drug and alcohol rehabilitation program, but it's, it's Christian, Scripture-based. It's west of Stewart, Florida. A lot of people have gone through, a lot of men have gone through there. One of the, one of the, well, the chairman of my board, uh, the elder board down in Palm Beach Gardens when I pastored there for 21 years, the chairman was on the board at Dunklin, and then he and his wife Melanie, Fred and Melanie Beeson, they started the ref, uh, Refuge Ranch, which was a, a Dunklin for females. And it's located not far, maybe a quarter of a mile from Dunklin. And as I was talking with, uh, uh, Patrick this week, uh, it just ref it brought up a lot of memories. I used to go out there a lot. No, I was not an alcoholic or drug addict, but I spent a lot of time there because I loved being around men who were broken, men who hungered for God. And there were quiet places that I could go out and just sit with the Lord and just get into, my, into the Bible and really just, I don't know, the, it was just, there was such clarity because there's not, nothing hindering, no, nothing blocking your focus of the word. But one of the things that I remember well is how if a man is going to blame his parents, blame his upbringing, blame his, the other people for his issues, Dunklin will not take that man into the program. They'll look you right in the eye and say, hey, bud, you're not ready for this. And here's what they'll say next. We hope you find what the real problem is while you're out in the world. And we also hope that you'll live long enough to find it, and then we can help you. And many of those guys would go out, especially on the drug side, and they would die and never get help. And I'm just here today to say that, that the same is true for us when we think about our marriages when we think about our families, we, you got to stop blaming others. you got to stop blaming your upbringing. You, you just can't, listen, nobody had a perfect upbringing. And, and you can focus on those who had a better one than you, but there's other people you could focus on that had a worse one than you. And there's people who had a worse upbringing than you, and they are solid in the Lord, and they're doing well. We, none of us have an excuse for not focusing in on the Word of God and obeying Christ. That's, you have to choose to be a healthy family. It's a choice. And until you make a decision, you'll never change. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings about the change, but you have to choose to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. You've got to surrender to God, just like in salvation. You've got to surrender. Let it go. Let it go. It's God's work in you. But your part is you have to have faith to believe. And, and to believe is to surrender, I'm telling you. And so, in review, God puts man in this perfect situation where he could thrive and live forever with God. And here, here's some of the perfect, listen, listen to this. They were made, up, made in the image of God, the first man and woman. Made in the image of God. That means there was no stain in the blood, in the, uh, in the blood pool. I mean, I mean, I'm telling you right now, it was a perfect genetic situation. So perfect that Adam was so smart 
that God said, go ahead and name all the animals, and he did. They're names that the scientists today use. The first man and woman had everything going for them, made in the image of God. They had a great job, tend the garden, have dominion over the plants and over the animals of the garden. Thirdly, they were the highest form of creation. They were like God in the fact that they shared some of his qualities, like the ability to have a will, ability to make choices. Man was given a spirit. God is a spirit. Although our spirit, because of the fall, man's spirit is dormant. It's unregenerate. Number four, they had a clear mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. They had clear boundaries. Eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They had, they, and then lastly, they had each other. In Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Or a helper in the ESV, fit for him. So God created woman as a helper fit for the man. This is called complementarianism. Complementarianism teaches that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or to complete each other. It's, it's what she is, the way God created her, that he needs to be whole. It is what he is as God created him and what she is as God created her. And he makes her whole. This is what God did. Complementarianism believes that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful and meaningful distinctions that when they're applied in the home and in the church, they promote the spiritual health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women furthers the ministry of God's people and allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. Without it, you will not. You'll reflect more this world that is lost, that is at enmity with God, than you will reflect God. This is such an important thing that I, I hope each of you understand. I'm going to say some things this morning that are probably going to step on toes. I'm okay with that because I'm standing in the word of God this morning. These are not my opinions, but I am here not to tell you just how it is, but I'm here to tell you how it ought to be. And so I'm telling you right now in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Listen, male and female, he created them. This tells us that God created humanity and he created them male and female. Then Genesis 2.18 says that, uh, tells us that God created Eve specifically to complement Adam. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or suitable for him. So let me make this really clear from God's word. We're staying on this for a second, and I need you to bear with me. I need you to hear every word. And the parts that are going to just cause the hair to stand up on the back of your neck, you need to deal with that. We can't have some of the Bible. We either have the whole truth because it is true or none of it's true. We don't have the right to pick and choose what we think is right. Okay, so listen now. Genesis 2.18, again, a helper fit for him. So let's make it very clear here from God's word. There are two genders, male and female, and they're part of God's created order. Any modern day blurring of these two genders or any distortion of the roles of a man and a woman as given by God before the fall, that's a result of the fall. 
Whatever we've missed, whatever we've come up short in, it's because of the fall, because of man's choice to choose sin. Complementarianism follows, write this passage down if you will, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33. Complementarianism, you'll find it right there. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. It's a model for the home in that passage. But it's not just, okay, and let me just say this about that. The husband has the role in the home of spiritual headship. Headship. He is to nurture his wife and lead his family lovingly, humbly, and sacrificially. Men, are you hearing me this morning? I want to hear an amen when when we talk about that because that's so important. Let me just say it again. You're called to spiritual headship in the home. You are called to nurture your wife and lead your family lovingly, humbly, and sacrificially. Thank you, Tom. There's a few of you that got it. I think some of us are still asleep. The wife has the role of nurturing her children and intentionally, willingly submitting to her husband's leadership. When both husband and wife are complimenting each other in this way, Christ is honored. I'm not afraid to use the word submit, even in this day. Because what God means by hupotasso is a far cry from what the world has made that word out to be. And the reason that you're, you don't like it is because you've been so inculcated by this world's system that you no longer recognize what God meant by submission. It's not the same. And I hope you'll hear me today and you'll allow me to share. The marriage itself becomes what it is and what it's designed to be, a living picture of Christ and his church That's what Paul said in in, in Ephesians 5. So ladies, here's the picture. You never saw anywhere, you never hear this in the early church, where they rise up over Jesus. The church always submits to Jesus Christ. That is the calling of the church to Christ. And And men, never do we see Christ taking advantage of that order of submission of the church. Jesus was willing to die for the church. Loving, humble, broken sacrifice for the church. It's a beautiful, marriage is supposed to be a beautiful picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. Husband and wife, that's the picture. That's the picture. In the church, complementarianism follows 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 3, 7. Write that down. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 3, 7. Some of you who are Bible students, you want to know the word. Well, I'm giving it to you, so write it down. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 3, 7. And then Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. This is the model for the church. Biblically, the man in the church, or the men in the church, bear the responsibility to provide spiritual leadership and training for the church. The women are to exercise spiritual gifts in any way that Scripture allows. There's only one prohibition for women, and that is to teach or to assume authority over men. This is what the Bible says. A woman is not to teach men or assume authority over men. That's not my idea. That's not the way I like it. That's the way it is. By the way, the scripture says those who teach will be held to a much higher accountability and standard before God. So don't think that those who do teach are getting off easy. They got an easy job. They're going to stand before God and hear a whole different level of questioning. When men and women are fulfilling their God-given roles within a church, Christ is honored. In fact, the church itself becomes what it was designed to be, 
a living picture of Christ's body. So what we're saying is when a husband and wife are able to respect and accept their differences, then love has the opportunity to blossom. Where they fail to respect and honor God's roles for men and women, when they fail to submit to God's design for marriage, there is no blossom. There's no bloom. And this world is filled with marriages that end in divorce. And honestly, the ratio is the same in the church as it is in the world. That shows you how far we are from God's original plan and how we've not submitted ourselves to Christ. Most people in this world have no clue that God is the one who designed marriage and family. That's why so many marriages today will never reap the benefits that God put into marriage and family. I, feel si- I, I really feel sorry for single people. Now, some are called to singleness. L- listen, ladies and, and, and gentlemen, everybody here, those of you who are married especially, do not put pressure on a single to be married. You don't know that God hasn't called them to remain single. To be single and go through life, if God's called you to that, is to put Christ first in everything. As a husband and wife, you can't do that. You've got to also look out for each other, and you've got to look out for your kids, and that's the way God wants it. But a single person puts Christ first in everything in terms of that's their focus. Now, another thing I feel sorry for singles about, because this world has so inculcated them with this idea that there's this perfect person out there for them. Ain't true. I got one amen. There is no perfect person out there for you. Good grief, you're not perfect. Why would God want to give you a perfect person if you're not perfect? And no perfect people exist. Everybody's a sinner. And only through Jesus Christ and, his, and, and the forgiveness of sin can we actually have a new start and follow God. So what should the focus be? The focus should be that we look for someone who loves Jesus the way we do. I don't go on some internet matchmaking service to find my mate. I go to church, I hang out with Christian young people because I want to be in fellowship with those who love Jesus the way I do. And I'm just telling you, God will present opportunities for you. What we really need for God's divine blessing on marriage is two people who love Christ, people who have a heart to serve the Lord, a desire to walk in the Holy Spirit, a willingness to learn how to love each other every day, fresh and new. And that marriage has the foundation necessary to grow into the kind of union that will fill your life with complete joy and blessing and be a blessing and bring glory to the name of God. It's not about finding the perfect person. It's about finding somebody who hungers for God the way you do, who loves the word of God the way you do, who wants to obey and follow Jesus the way you do, who wants to serve the Lord the way you do. You find that person. You can have a wonderful life with them. A whole different approach, whole different approach. This fake, and it's fake. This bachelor and bachelorette nonsense. Go and meet up with however many, 10, 30 people of the opposite sex, where you can even sleep with them if you want to, in many cases. And they're always dressing to the hilt, and they look like they're perfect. Not a single one of them is perfect. They've all got a mess, and guess what? You'll not know that mess till after you marry them. And because you didn't get to know them for the right reasons on the front side, you'll never know them once you're married. Believe me, I'm telling you. You want to find a Christian. You don't need to go on a dating service on television and have it broadcast. God forbid, I'm so glad my girls are married. If I, it would just break my heart if one of them had gone on a show like that. Or my son. God forbid that that's how you'd find your spouse. Oh my goodness. Pitiful. 
So stop looking for the perfect person. They don't exist. And by the way, you're not perfect, right? So stop doing that stuff. Listen, there's going to be moments when you are married to the person who loves God the way you do. You're still going to have conflict, but it won't be continual conflict as long as both of you fall back. See, when you're struggling with each other, you both fall back on Jesus. And Jesus heals, restores, and realigns the two of you. If you don't know Jesus or your spouse doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't happen. You fall back on Jesus, they don't. That's why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. I will not marry a couple where the one is a Christian and the other is not. I will not marry them. I will marry two people that are lost because I'm going to get an opportunity to share the gospel with them and I'm going to lay it out. They're going to see it for what it is and they got a decision to make. But I'm not going to join a Christian with a non-Christian and you shouldn't date people that you would never want to marry that aren't solid in the Lord. Marriage does not have to be a continual conflict. I don't agree with the English field marshal Montgomery who said, gentlemen, don't even think of marriage until you've mastered the art of war. Good grief. That is not what God had in mind when he created the union of man and woman. It is not about war. Are there times of disagreement and conflict? Yes. Honey, would you agree? Yes. I am committed to this woman. God has joined us together. And oftentimes, he is humbling me, teaching me through her. And I would like to think that there's an instance of that every once in a while where she experiences something from being married to me. That's the beauty of marriage. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you're committed to work through your issues. If you're in a marriage right now that's troubled, I'm telling you right now, you set your heart and your mind to do the work. You say, what's the work? The Word of God. What the Bible tells you about marriage. You do that work. And I'm telling you, God will restore. God can take a broken relationship and he can recover love in that relationship. I've seen it so many times. I've seen couples that got a divorce and now they're together. We've got people in our church that, that that's their testimony. They divorced and now they're together again. That's what our God can do, amen? So now let's just focus in. We haven't even started the sermon yet. So <laughs> let's look at Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis, what Ray read for us. I just want to walk through this with you. Nothing can prepare you in your marriage like the Word of God and, and the illumination of the Word of God by the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So this is Eve's interpretation of what God said. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said don't eat of it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, what we just read is a perfect illustration of Satan's schemes and tactics. He is so cunning. That's why 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, but I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve with his craftiness that you might also be led astray 
from the simple and pure devotion to Christ. Satan always follows the same pattern that leads to destruction. Let's look at it right here in the text. First, he challenges what God said. What did he, what did he say? Did you actually, did God actually say that? So he's challenging. Then second, he questions what God said. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that right? Is that what I'm hearing? By the way, that is a popular answer given by modern Christians who have not fully surrendered their life to Christ. You'll go to a, a, a Bible study and they'll read a passage of Scripture and then the leader will say, so what does that mean to you? Oh, well, then I get to share my opinion on what I think God's saying. Uh, excuse me, God's not interested in your opinion. God already has an opinion. He just wants you to follow his opinion. And then you get these people in the small group who'll say, do you really think that's what he meant? And they don't, see, it's not about coming to a conclusion for them. They just want to raise questions about everything. Because by raising questions, it causes a person to lose the promise, to lose the confidence in God. That's a scheme of Satan. We're going to have small groups. We've already, elders are working on that. We're excited about that. We're not going to have that kind of small group. We're going to have where we, we open the Bible, we look at the text, and then we say, now, now, here's what God is saying in the text. Are you lining up with it? Okay, so here, the second question, he questions what God says. Thirdly, he contradicts God outright. You shall not surely die. So at this point, Eve didn't know evil. She only knew not to eat of the tree. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan first challenged the words of God. Now, Satan is challenging the justice of God. I want to say this to you. This is where many Christians get off track in their doctrine and their understanding of God. Because now it's about what I feel. Okay, so let me give you an example. Good example. I've given this before, and this has been a problem for now, probably a, a big problem for the last 15 years in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. This idea of universal salvation. That somehow, uh, you know, okay, people go to heaven and there'll be some who go to hell. Some, majority will go to hell. But they'll say, yeah, but you know what? God is loving. And his love will win out over his justice. And eventually... Even those in hell will go to heaven. It's called universal salvation. There is not a single scripture in the Bible that supports that. Let me tell you what the Bible does say. And let me tell you what Jesus said. The righteous will go unto eternal life. And the wicked unto eternal damnation. The word eternal in both Life and destruction is the same word, meaning you can't believe in the eternality of heaven and not believe in the eternality of hell, because Jesus didn't believe that way. He believed that there is an eternal heaven and there is an eternal hell. But see, this idea that I just can't conceive of God, not through his love, bringing those people who are in hell to heaven. I just can't believe that God would be like that. See, now here's what you're doing. You're trying to make God fit how you feel. God's not interested in that. He's interested in you being broken and shattered and splintered and crushed and annihilated in your own flesh and your own will and surrendering to know him in who he is, not who you want him to be. And that's what Satan does here. He's challenging the justice or the fairness of God. So when the woman, verse 6, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband 
who was with her, and he ate. Satan used a three-pronged attack here to tempt Eve. You want to know what the three-pronged attack was? Let the Bible interpret the Bible here. Turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Go ahead, I'll give you a second. First, towards the back of your Bible, 1 John 2, 16. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Go left. If you get to Revelation, go left. Here's what the passage says. 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world. Here's what's in the world. This is the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, that is not a passage about marriage. That's a passage about your life in God. When you do the will of God, you will abide with God forever. But look, what the, what's the three-pronged attack of Satan? He said, this is the world, the desires of the flesh. What did Eve see? The tree was good for food. The desire of the flesh, my flesh craves that food. The desires of the eyes, she saw it was a delight to the eyes, right there in the text. And then the third thing, the pride of life. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Oh, I want to be wise. I can be wise like God. And so she took and she ate. It was the woman, listen, understand this. It was the woman who was deceived by Satan, not Adam. It was the woman. Hang on, ladies. I'm not letting the men off that easy. Adam knew what he was doing, and he did it. She was deceived. She was hoodwinked, not Adam. Then, then verse 7, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. For the first time, man is very conscious of his flesh. And now an inversion of God's creation takes place. When God made man and woman, he gave them a spirit, a soul, and a body. And in that order. The greatest part of man in creation was his spirit. He could have fellowship with God in the garden. God is a spirit. And he's to be worshipped, the Bible says, Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. The, the real you, if you're saved, is your spiritual being. That is the real you. It's by your spirit that you're able to worship God. It, it was by Adam's spirit that he was able to have relationship with God in the cool of the day. But when man sinned, his spirit became dormant, unregenerate. It, it might as well have been dead. God took that from him. Why? Because that's the natural order. If you sin... You can't have that fellowship with God. It's broken. So Adam and Eve chose to place the flesh over the spirit. Therefore, an inversion took place. They became physical beings that had a soul and a dead spirit. They went from being spiritual beings that had a soul and lived in a body to being physical beings. That's the focus. That's the driving force now that each and every one of us have to overcome every single day. The physical being. We have a soul, and if we're saved, we have a regenerated spirit. If you're not saved, your spirit's unregenerate. It's dormant. You're, you're not, in fact, the Bible says a natural man, a man whose spirit is dormant, does not have the capacity to understand the things of God. The only one who can understand the things of God is a person who the Holy Spirit is living in. And the Spirit makes alive, quickens, illuminates, 
brings revelation to that person about that truth in God's word. So what God has done for us is he has redeemed us. he's, He's brought us back into the relationship that Adam had with God before he fell. That's the beauty of salvation. Salvation is not just, it's not really the priority of salvation. It's not eternal life. The priority is fellowship with God, restored to a relationship with God. Amen? And if that's true, then we ought to all be in relationship with God every day, praying, studying His Word, singing His praises every day. I love, I love Vero Bible Fellowship for the worship that we have. Here's what I mean by that. There is no fanfare on this stage during worship. There is nothing to draw you away to man, how good man is. There's there's no mood that we're creating in order for you to worship God. This is a well-lit room with a wall that's glass that you can the light comes in. There's no colored lights. There's no smoke in the corner coming up, you know, from a smoke machine, a fog machine. We don't have any of that stuff. If you can't worship God here, you can't worship God anywhere. What we do have are the words on the screen that are solid, doctrinal, clear truths about God. What we do have is a vocal-driven congregation where the emphasis is not on the band. We have instrumentalists, and I'm glad for that. I I enjoy that. But that's not the driving force of our worship. It's the voices in the room that sing out these wonderful truths about God. And in the midst of that, all of a sudden, my emotions are being fueled into joining in worship. And I can let out a shout every once in a while which is perfectly fine. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. I just woke some of you up. But that's what real worship is. It's being fueled by truth. Truth that you learn here, not what you feel here. You don't learn truth here. This, this, what I feel, should follow what I know. Does that make sense? Don't, listen, don't become a physical being that has a soul and acts like the spirit is unregenerate, even though it's been regenerated by Christ. Don't go into a room trying to appeal to your flesh. Oh, I like, oh, oh, I just love that song. Oh, I just think that their band's the best in town. I think it's, we've got the best band of any church in town. That's flesh. It's not spirit. Amen? I'm kind of hanging out here, but there, there's something in this for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, when, when, when your spirit that is unregenerate, that is dormant, when you get saved, that spirit comes alive and it makes you a new person. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Paul said that the natural man can't understand the things of the spirit, And when you try to explain it to them, they're not going to get it. But you understand it now because your spirit can communicate with the Holy Spirit. You can recognize. You have discernment now. You can go and listen to a sermon and go, "Mm, mm, 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 no, no, he's, that's not true. That's not what the word says. And you live out of the discernment and not out of just whatever feels right. Because if you just feel it, you're going to be taught all kinds of stuff that's not in the Bible. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, God among the trees of the garden. I want you to notice that it isn't God hiding himself from Adam and Eve. It's Adam and Eve that are hiding. They initiate, listen, Adam and Eve initiated the dividing wall between God and man. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
It's not that God didn't know. He's just making the point that man is hiding from him. I want you to know you're the one doing the hiding here. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So now we're in the blame game, blaming Eve, and then really blaming God, the woman who you gave me. Verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, by the way, he came into the garden, they're hiding, he does not call out Eve first. Eve was the first one to fall into the temptation. Why wouldn't God address Eve first? Because headship in creation was given to men. So he holds the man accountable first. Now to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, that's true. But God didn't say, what did the serpent do to you? He said, what have you done? He's giving her an opportunity to confess her sin. She didn't do it. We typically see the, the sins of others and not see the sins in ourselves. The serpent deceived me. It's his, pro it's his fault. So now comes the judgment of God. Look at this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here we find the first promise of God to bring salvation through Jesus Christ. The first hint that Messiah will come through a virgin. Because he said, her seed. Wait a minute, the woman doesn't have a seed. The woman has an egg. The man provides the seed. So what's God saying? When, when Messiah comes, it'll be through a virgin birth. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So serpent, you're going to bruise the heel of man. But there's a man coming who will crush your head, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself Likewise, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I remember years ago seeing a video clip they somehow tried to, uh, uh, <laughs> they, they tried to produce the same labor pains that a woman would feel by hooking electrodes to, to a man in his stomach area and every, and they, they, they said, okay, we're going to show you some easy contraction. These, these are the initial contractions. And the man's going, oh, oh, okay, okay, now we're going to take it from two up to five. So now they're building, and the guy's hunching over a little bit, you know. By the time they get ready for delivery and the, and the pains and stuff, I mean, that guy is screaming out. I mean, he is in terrible trouble. God's the one who put the pain that a woman feels in childbearing. It's a reminder that the first woman, she was deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And then he says this to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Some versions say your desire will be for your husband, but it doesn't mean like some kind of an intimate desire. Uh-uh. Here it clarifies in the ESV, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Teshuka in the Hebrew, meaning a craving, a longing. 
but he shall rule over you. That's the word mashal, to rule, to have dominion, to reign, to exercise dominion. So let's clarify this a little bit so we understand. In the body of Christ before the Lord, there's no distinction between male and female. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Men do not have a greater capacity of spiritual understanding. Men do not have more gifting than women. Men do not have a deeper understanding and more wisdom of the Bible. No, no, no. Women are equal. And in position, we're all equal. Salvation is salvation. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, Greek, Jew, black, white, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're all equal, okay? That's, that's the bottom line. But in essence of, of role, very unique between men and women. Let me give you several examples. In the local church, in the body of Christ, there's a distinction made between a shepherd and the sheep. A shepherd is given the role of oversight, spiritual headship. Shepherds are called and commanded by God to lead the sheep. Sheep are never given the role of leading the shepherd. Yet there are churches all over America, and the national statistic on this 50% of all pastors face a forced termination in their ministry at some point. Some deserved it. Others did not. But sheep rise up and lead the shepherd. That's the way it is. It's not right, but that's the way it is. In the home, while we all receive the same inheritance in Christ, there's, there is a distinguishable principle of headship submission and how a husband and wife are to function together or how a child is to function with the parents. What about the child? How should they? Listen, parents, listen to this. Children, those of you who are a little older, listen to this. The Greek word is hupokuo. Hupokuo. To obey. That is how a child is to function in the home. You are put in the home to obey the parents. Now, if your parents are evil and wicked, you are not to follow them in disobedience, in their disobedience. But if they're not disobedient, if they're just trying to uphold the word of God, you must obey. Amen? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Amen. Now, what about the husband-wife relationship? The word is hupotasso. It means to line up underneath. It does not mean that a woman is to become a doormat for the man. It doesn't mean that he sits back in his recliner and every once in a while he just calls out, bring me something refreshing, something in a goblet. No, 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 no. That's not the picture. Here's the picture. The picture is that he has been given the responsibility to respect, to love, to sacrifice for his wife and his children. She has been given the role of hupotasso. She is to come under that spiritual headship that God has placed on him. There's never a decision, any major deci there's never a major decision that, that I make on my own and Rini has to follow me. That's never happened. It's, we're in this together. I want to hear what she thinks because she's a godly woman and she knows scripture too. It's just that in the final analysis, I'm the one that God's going to come searching for that's hiding. So ladies, don't think of it the way the world thinks of it. It's not about masculinity that's on steroids. It's about understanding a beautiful role where together, and again, it's about complementing one another. So the curse to the woman is that she will desire to dominate or to be independent of the man. That's what it meant there. You're going to desire to dominate him. And by the way, that's what happened in the garden. Adam was given headship. Who spoke to the serpent? Who did the serpent go after first? The woman. Why? Because he's trying to invert God's role for man and woman. 
she should have said, I think you need to speak to my husband about that. That's what she should have said. She didn't do that. She asserted herself. And then she told him, you should eat of it too. Now, that's not an excuse for him and his eating. That's on him. And God came after him for that. You understand what I'm saying? Look what it says. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to, hey, life's not going to be easy now because of your sin. Life's going to be tough. You shall bring forth, it will bring forth you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the curse. Men, it's not supposed to be easy in life. Man, life's so tough. I don't understand why. I just told you why. And, and that's part of the curse. Now, when we're saved, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the toughness is lifted. Jesus said, in this world you'll have what? Much tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So you now have Christ in you, the hope of glory, to help you deal with this world. He is the one who's guiding you in this world. Verse 20, we'll stop. The man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, uh, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. Remember now, earlier, they, they clothed themselves with botanical leaves. And God said, uh-uh. Sin could never be covered by anything other than blood being shed. Without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So God said, get rid of the leaves. And he killed two animals. And he covered them with the skins of the animals. By the way, that's not redemption. Adam and Eve did not experience redemption in that moment. That's covering sin. That's like putting a rug over top of the sin. I'm just going to put something over there. But yet, <clears throat> that's also a sign that God gave that someone will come. I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, it's nothing but a bloodbath. Millions upon millions of animals were sacrificed to cover sins of man. And you'd sacrifice an animal, and the next day you sin again, so go, go get another animal, bring it to a temple. i got to do it all over again. That's what it was like in the Old Testament. But finally, the sacrificial lamb, the Bible says that was slain from the foundation of the world. God knew that Jesus would go to the cross before he even created Adam and Eve. And Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice. His blood would not just cover sin. Through his blood and the satisfaction that it brought God, it satisfied God's wrath and anger and God's judgment against sin. Through that, you're not just covered it. Now you're redeemed. You're redeemed. No longer does God see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. Justification by faith is just as if you never sinned. That's how your father sees you. Lord, remember that sin I committed? What are you talking about? You're my precious child covered in my son's righteousness. That's all I see. Isn't that wonderful? You bring that into a relationship in marriage, an understanding of that, and a surrender to Christ because of it, you'll desire now You'll have an unction, a desire to start obeying God in that role of a husband, in that role of a wife, and line up with God in these areas. You'll never regret it, ever. I've never met a couple who's marriage on the rocks, and, and they said, man, we just, we, we, we got saved, we, 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 we started walking with God, and man, he restored our marriage and our love for each other. And, but, but I just regret it. I wish that I was still back where I was single and I could go out and date. Never. Once somebody truly gets it from God, they don't want to go back. The problem that you're having is you've never really gotten it from God yet because you're not obeying the word. That's where it starts. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, 
this morning we are giving you thanks that you have a plan and it's a greater plan than than what man can come up with on his own man did not man did not create marriage you did and if we want the best that marriage can offer it has to be the way you designed it and we have to be humble enough to let you show us where we're not we're not uh, following you i pray god that you would use your passage in Genesis to teach each couple in this room and that they would look within and not look at their spouse, but look at themselves and find out how they can come into more alignment with your word. That we would carry out the roles that you have given us, that the husbands would love, respect, and make sacrifice for the wife and the children on a regular basis, every day. And that the wives would come under that leader that you have appointed and ordained, and that they would do the nurturing. They would provide nurturing to the children, but they would also serve in the church in the capacities of their gifts and their abilities, just like the man. We thank you, Lord, that you've created us this way. And I pray, God, that we would be able now to subjectively think about as the Holy Spirit begins to point out the areas that we need to change in, that we would be able to think about these areas. And we would come to decision of surrender before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite the prayer partners to come forward and stand. We're going to sing a song. And if you need to come forward just for prayer over any matter in your life, please do that, okay? And uh, thank you today for being part of the service. Sorry about the fact that you had to go to a different parking lot. For some of you, that, was a, you, that threw you way off. But... Uh, those of you who normally go to the west side parking area, it was probably a lot fuller. You're like, man, church is packed today. You got both parking lots over there. So God bless you. Let's sing. Let's respond to God if we need to, okay?